0: Well, good morning, church, and welcome to this morning. And however you have arrived in this space this morning, I invite you to hear this greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's good to be together for worship this morning. I hate to admit it, however, uh, but we are into the Sunday of summer. If you know what I mean by that, what I mean is that summer is a little bit like an extended weekend, where in June, we say that's Friday, in July, it's like Saturday, and August is like Sunday, and at this point, it's basically 4 p.m. on (laughs) Sunday, (laughs) which is not okay. And yet, we gather and we worship God through all the seasons, and we're grateful for them. And so I invite you to join me in a call to worship, which we'll say together in the form of a prayer. It's from Psalm 77, and it'll be on the screen. Let's join our voices together, saying, today, we remember your deeds, O Lord. Yes, we will remember your miracles of long ago. We will consider all your works. And meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is as great as you? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Thanks be to God. Friends, let's stand together and sing of God's great deeds.
1: Your, your name lifted high conquer the grave. You free every captive and break every chain, O oh God. You have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, Oh God. silent as light nor wanting nor wasting thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains are soaring above thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to Both great and small In all life Thou livest The true life of all We blossom and flourish Like leaves on the tree Then wither and perish But naught changeth thee Thou reignest in glory Joy Thee, all willing their sight, all praise we would render. Oh, help us to see, see, 'tis only the splendor of
2: light Maybe Thee. May be seated. Would you join me in your hearts in prayer? O oh God, the One who is immortal the one who is invisible. There is no darkness in you. But instead, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from you, the Father of heavenly lights. You do not change like shifting shadows. Nothing dark or shady hides in you. And you have given birth to us through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all you've created. Lord Jesus Christ, we are in need of your mercy and we ask for your forgiveness for when we have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Forgive us for wounding others and ourselves when we have been slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to become angry. Our human anger has not produced the righteousness you desire, O God. Only your word planted in our hearts, your deep and abiding love can bear fruits of righteousness in our lives. And so we ask for your grace in this, for us and for the world, for the sake of your name. We ask that your light in us would shine before others to see so that our good works would cause others to praise you, our Father in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again for us. Amen. Let's continue in worship and in prayer through song by praying the Lord's Prayer.
1: Let your kingdom come father that Your will be done on earth as in heaven right here in my heart father let your kingdom come father let your will be done on earth as in heaven forgive the ones who sinned against us. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let your kingdom come. Father, let your kingdom come. us as we forgive the ones who sinned against us. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let your kingdom come. It's your
0: Well, friends, as we continue in worship this morning, I've got a thought about shoes and a prayer for our schools this morning. This is mostly for the kids that are with us in the sanctuary this morning, but also for all of us who are kids at heart and grown-up kids, too. You'll notice soon, if you haven't already, that this morning our focus is on the book of James, which is the bossiest book in the Bible. It has the most commands, the most imperatives, in the shortest amount of space And so I thought it might be fitting to bring with me my Nikes, which their slogan is, just do it, right? We are nearing the beginning of a school season, and for many families, many cultures, there is a beginning of school tradition, which is to go out and get some new school shoes. So if you grew up in the 1960s, perhaps you went out and got some Converse All-Stars, if you grew up in the 1970s, maybe you went out and got some Birkenstock sandals. If it was the 90s, perhaps you had some Reebok pumps. Mine were maroon. You get the idea, but today I brought with me the Nike shoes, because this is the book that says, just do it. You may or may not know that Fellowship Church has a long-standing tradition of helping kids get shoes at the beginning of a school year, and especially those who might have a challenge affording them on a given year. And this week in particular, 300 pairs of shoes have been given out uh, to help people in our own community. So thanks be to God for that. But it's also a reminder to us that it is approaching the beginning of school season. And that's where I want to offer a prayer with you. If you are a student uh, of any age, really, young or college or grad school, would you please stand? And I'm going to have join you students. You can stand. Please do. Teachers also join them in standing. If you are a teacher or also, if you are a school worker of any sort, administration or otherwise, please stand. If you're a part of our educational community, I want you to stand. The rest of you, please maybe extend a hand towards these folks, and we'll offer a prayer together at the beginning of school season. Oh Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray now first that you would be with all of our students, just as you have promised to be with us always. I pray that you would give the students great teachers, good friends, enriching experiences, abundant playtime, and eager-to-learn attitudes. I pray also, O God, that you would guide parents as they wander through the wilderness of parenting. Please make us parents wise when we cannot clearly see the way forward. Make us strong in the face of weaknesses, And please make possible the good things that sometimes seem impossible for us or our kids so that we might joyfully entrust ourselves and our children to your loving care, O God, and always. I pray also for our teachers and our administrators and all the school workers who give themselves to this work of education. I pray that you would grant them joy in doing their work and deep purpose. May they feel often the tremendous value of what they are doing. And please grant them creativity and stamina and kindness and patience. And as this school year soon starts, I pray for the whole system from budgets to buildings, to committees and projects and teams and all the other little parts. I pray even in the places where you cannot be named, oh God, I pray that you would yet still be present and active. We offer this new school year and all of its people, all of its parts to you, oh God. And we ask you to join us in it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Stay standing because everyone else is gonna stand. Please stand, everybody. And I want to remind you this morning that we gather to celebrate the fact that it is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have peace with God and peace with one another. So would you take a moment to share a sign of that peace with those around you?
3: I do not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good morning, Fellowship. Um, if I have not yet met you, my name is Tierra. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and love others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new with us this morning, um, maybe you've been here, this is your first Sunday, maybe you've been here for a couple Sundays and you are ready to take that next step to get to know us better as a community, uh, we would love to get to know you. And to do that, there's a card in the back that looks like this, a connection card, and they are on those little stools in the back. You can fill out one of those, you can take it over to the Welcome Center, and there's some great folks there um, who can't wait to meet you and greet you by name and help us help you to get to know us and us to get to know you. Uh, several announcements for us this morning uh, because as uh, Reverend Dieleman has said (laughs) multiple times uh, August is basically Sunday, it's like the day before all the things begin sadly August is like Sunday (laughs) so uh, few things for us. First, coming up this coming Sunday on August 27th is our hymn sing. Uh, we will gather together, sing hymns. I believe there is ice cream. I think we're calling it how sweet the sound or something like that. Pun intended. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we would love to see you there. And also if there's a hymn that you would like to request, you can offer that you can send those requests to Jess Mix who would love to integrate those um, for you. Uh, coming up on september third that 's the weekend immediately after that is labor Day weekend that Sunday we will have one worship gathering at nine thirty a m What time is the worship gathering? If you come early, you come late either way you 'll get a chance to worship, but we would love to see you promptly at nine thirty <laughs> so uh After Labor Day, we will be doing um, lots of fall activities, classes, groups, um, all sorts of things that are meeting, including our community nights. Um, We take the summer off, but starting in the fall, September 13th, and that'll be our first community night gathering. Um, And there are a number of opportunities to not only have a meal with someone that maybe you know, or maybe someone that you don't know yet, uh, but also to engage in discipleship for all ages. There's stuff for nursery, for elementary, for middle school students, uh, as well as adults and high schoolers, interested high schoolers are included with those adult programs as well. Uh, So uh, in addition to um, our immerse groups, group experience, uh, some of those, some of those are meeting on different days, but um, also on Wednesday, we have a number of people at Fellowship who are offering really, really cool, um, really, really cool learning opportunities, including uh, something that we're calling Ain't Misbehaving. Uh, It is being offered by Kent Van Til, retired professor of ethics at Hope College um, on Faith and Ethics. Uh, would love to see you be a part of that if you're in so inclined. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Faithful Stewardship, uh, which is being hosted by Ken Ericks, um and also um, facilitated by a number of financial experts within our community here. Uh, so that uh, is also kicking off in the fall. If you're ready to take the next step to um, just ask questions that you wouldn't necessarily ask your own people about. Uh, It's a great space for you to learn more about faithful stewardship. Uh, Reverend Dr. Suzanne McDonald from Western Seminary, who is also here and she's usually in first service, will be offering a class on eschatology. It's only four weeks and it'll be a little bit later in the semester. And there are a number of other opportunities of differing lengths um, throughout the semester. So I would love to see you be a part of that. Speaking of community nights, uh, during community nights, our elementary school, school or uh, elementary school students do something called blast. Uh, they do that with Miss Betsy, I and mean, it's a great time of fellowship, but also formation and learning. And so we have a number of folks who are coming back to continue serving our elementary school students uh, during that time. And we could use a couple more folks. Specifically, Miss Betsy is requesting one male volunteer and one female volunteer uh, to help, not with teaching necessarily, but with just kind of building relationships with kids, um, helping them with games and crafts and group activities and faith formation. She said she think of it like a youth group for kids. So if you're interested in learning more about that or in serving our kids this semester at any point during the semester for whatever duration, Ms. Betsy would love to hear from you and you can reach out to her directly for that. There's a lot happening, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're like dazed right now. Yeah, I know. (laughs) There's a lot happening at Fellowship. um, And there's a lot happening through Fellowship. We are so blessed as a church that we get to do so much ministry work together, um, but that we also just get to partner with God locally and globally. And that is made possible by your generosity to and through Fellowship Reform Church. So thank you for um, partnering with us financially. If you have not yet partnered with us, there are a number of ways to do so, including the giving bowls in the back and also um, online giving. One last thing, Um, if you have your bulletins, you will notice um, on one of the panels in the bulletin a number of requests for care, uh, for prayer, for um, support and encouragement as people recover um, from various things. Um, One of the things that did not make the list um, came in over the weekend. Um, As a community, we are extending our sympathies um, and our prayers um, and our support to Chris Sprick, um, and her husband, Mark, as they mourn the loss of her mother, Ruth Williams, who passed away this past Friday. So uh, keep them in your prayers, reach out to them, um, and, and offer them your love and support this season. Uh, with that, um, uh, two things. First, we're going to continue in prayer and in worship together as a community, and so we'll invite you to stand. And also, kiddos, ages three to first grade, you are free to follow Ms. Betsy um, at this time. Thank you. Please stand.
1: Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee.
4: Well, the Lord be with you, Fellowship Church. One of, or during my sophomore year of college, it was one of those times in my life where I experienced some unique spiritual growth—a faith greenhouse of sorts. And one of my favorite books during that time was the Book of James. Probably because it was so stinking practical. And, you know, maybe I just have a longing for, you know, practicing the faith rather than thinking about it. Maybe it's because I was or am still a simple-minded fellow who just wanted some clear instructions on how to embody the Christian faith. Regardless, James was one of my favorite books of the Bible and yet, this week, as I immersed myself in it again afresh, uh, my enthusiasm that I recalled has, has seemed to have faded a bit over the years. It's a tricky letter, as uh, Ross, the boss, mentioned earlier. Uh, as it, that was a joke from Camp Geneva, sorry, I should uh, clarify. <laughs> um, It's a book of shoulds, of do's and don'ts. You should live this way, you shouldn't live this way. And it seems to have very little mention of the grace and love of Jesus Christ that is so clearly spelled out in so many of Paul's letters. James seems to be less about theology and more about theopraxy, in fact, as Ross the Boss mentioned, there's 54 verbs that are conjugated in the imperative form. This would mean like verbs that end with an exclamation point. Do this, rejoice, live this out, go. You get the idea. And there's only 108 verses in the whole letter, which means that every other verse on average would have an imperative verb. It reads more like a Vince Lombardi locker room speech than an Ernest Hemingway novel. And maybe that's why there's so many critics of it, especially in the High and browed Academy, that it doesn't take much research to discover that it has some seriously mixed reviews. Famously, Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw, claiming it had no evidence of the nature of the gospel in it at all. Another Martin, Debelius, whoever he is, said, this is a jumbled series of unrelated teaching materials strung together in haphazard form. Zing, wow. Others, slightly more generous but equally skeptical, have said James preaches Jesus Christ just in his own peculiar way, or James reflects a type of Christianity as different as well can be imagined as Paul and John. Which is all to say that in our summer series on the letters of the New Testament, James stands out as a bit of an outlier. It's a unique letter because of its content, but also because of its title. We've made a switch from the letters that are uh, uh, titled based on the audience that are receiving it. And this now, we're in the letters or the epistles that are titled by the one who wrote it. James stands out. It's a little different. And as tempting as it may be to ignore controversial things or set aside things that are different than the rest, I think we want to jump right in this morning and this week if you would like to follow along on the reading little plan on our little postcards that we have for you. My hope is that we might take this straightforward book and not look to poke holes in it or say what's wrong with it, but rather be open to the Spirit's convicting power in reading it. And this morning, we're going to take just one of his jumbled teachings and consider what it means for us as a church and maybe even as individuals. But before we do that, let's pray. Oh God, your word is said to be sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating our souls and our spirits. This is certainly true, and maybe especially in the book of James. May we, by the power of your Holy Spirit, though, be open to you and to your word for us today and in this coming week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. James 2, verses 1 through 10. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, hey, have a seat here, please, while to the other one you say, stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with your evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. "Love. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. But, if you show partiality you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point to become accountable fails in one point has become accountable for all of it this is the word of the lord in a book filled with imperatives this chapter 2 stands out a little bit because of the effort that James took to illustrate his point with a parable in other passages, he illustrates this point with Old Testament characters as examples of faithfulness. But here, in this instance, he uses a parable, maybe like his brother Jesus did, one from everyday life, one that we can even relate to in the here and now. He wants to double down, you might say, on his point of showing no favoritism, especially in the church Popular topic, or a really popular topic also in our families, if you know what I mean. We sometimes have those favoritism experiences there as well. <laughs> Clever, huh? Many suggest that the first chapter of the book of James is the introduction to the letter. It's a series of one-liners that foreshadow the rest of the book. Well, chapter two begins with the first blo- this first little block of a series of about 12 teachings by James. James is writing to Christians that have fled from Jerusalem. You see, there was persecution and, uh, the, uh, by the Romans and by the Jews, as Reverend T. Marsh uh, mentioned last week. And there's also a famine in the land. And so the people escaped Jerusalem. They left for better places because they were Christians and they were pretty low on the totem pole. It's usually the people that without power that leave, that migrate to other places. They left for religious, economic reasons, and sometimes even survival. Maybe be like some of your ancestors did in coming to this country. James, the pastor, remained in Jerusalem though, and he is writing to his friends who have been dispersed throughout antiquity. Which is really interesting to think about because he's writing to what could be called migrants who have left their hometowns and they are living in a new land, probably second class citizens, maybe even speaking a different language than the place that they are there. And instead of bonding, they seem to have turned on one another. Instead of seeing unity as an option in the face of being the minority religion, instead of coming together to witness the grace and love of Jesus Christ, they picked favorites. They chose sides. They sought to gain from one another rather than serve one another. The favoritism that James is speaking of is around material wealth, but it could have been any other thing, many other things. The well-off were getting better treatment. Instead of following Jesus' example of showing no partiality, the one who sat with sinners and saints, male and female, Jew and Greek, they saw the rich as an opportunity for themselves to gain wealth or climb the social ladder. The problem was real. Favoritism and discrimination based on social status existed in their world, and it also existed in their churches. And to hammer home the point, he tells a story that makes our toes curl, if we're honest, is so uncomfortable. The people are gathered for worship, probably like we are today and and like we have this morning. uh, There's ushers. You've been around for 2,000 years. Well done for your job. Uh, And the ushers are noticing that the service is getting a little full. And so they begin to set up some chairs out in the atrium, maybe in the gym so that folks can live stream. But suddenly they see a family come in that is not like the others. A really, really well-off family, maybe like uh, some family that uh, you can imagine uh, from our own hometown. And they come in. Into the worship service, and they're like, Where are we gonna sit, seat them? I, I better, you, you know, Dave and Emily Garcia, they sit sitting out like that great spot, kind of in the middle. They can see the front, but they're not, you know, not too far back, not too far forward. Hey, let's ask them to, to take a seat in the atrium so that we can sit this, this family right here. And so they do. And Dave and Emily are very gracious, and they're like, Yeah, we'll go sit in the atrium. We don't care. But meanwhile, afterwards, the usher sees another family walk in whose clothes are a little ragged, maybe some ta- tears. Their breath smells of the festivities they had the night before. And they say, we don't want them to sit in the sanctuary. We don't want them to mess up the vibe in our crowd. So let's have them to go sit in the gym because we don't want them to be here. The usher is protecting the image of the gathering there. And they don't want them to be here with us. The ushers had turned the worship gathering into the seating for an international flight with the first-class people sitting in the first-class seat, the business-class people sitting right behind them, and then those economy plus, yeah, you can sit on the outside. You're kind of close, but you're not really in. And then the rest of us uh, are in the economy class. The last one's on the plane, the last one's off, the ones that fill their water bottles in the bathroom. Yeah, you sit over there in the gym, in the atrium. You don't belong here. James would have none of it. With all of his Enneagram 8 energy, he bluntly shares with the scattered church no favoritism. If you really believe in Jesus, this is not how you are to act. Your toes better curl as I tell this story. It's anti gospel, it is against the very way of Jesus. James's advice, James's parable, I think, would be a lot more funny today if the challenge of favoritism didn't still exist. We know it's good advice. We agree with James, even. It's easy to point out in the parable. But isn't it harder for us to live out in our everyday lives? We know the power of favoritism, whether we've been convicted when we practice it on others and make judgments or when we experience it from other people. My suspicion is that we've all been guilty at one point or another of choosing someone based on the way they look or our favorites. Our favorites but we also have felt a stingy effects in our lives when we've experienced it from other people, whether they intentionally did it or maybe even unintentionally. We were chaplains at Camp Geneva a couple weeks ago, and uh, when you go to Camp Geneva as a camper, you get uh, a bunk based on first come, first serve. But some of the kids come with um, a buddy, a favorite friend, you might even say, and they want to share the bunk with their buddy which makes for a kind of an awkward situation when you get into the bunk room and all of a sudden your buddy is sleeping on one bunk and the spot underneath them or below them is already taken. So it's not uncommon as we have experienced to say, oh, I want to sleep with Billy. I want to sleep with Tommy. But Billy and Tommy already have a bunkmate and you have to go sleep with somebody else in their bunkmate. This happened, and it made me wonder, I wonder how the other person on that bunk feels when someone says, I want to sleep with Billy. I want to sleep with Tommy. I also, it reminds me of another story of um, when Becca and I were dating a number of years ago. um, We went to school at Wittenberg and uh, her family's home was about 45 minutes away. And so oftentimes we would go uh, to her house uh, and have dinner with their family. And this is one of those occasions. It's about a 45 minute drive. And for some reason we weren't driving together. I was driving by myself. And so I said, hey, uh, I called Becca on my flip phone or whatever it was. uh, And I said, Hey, Beck, I'm going to be a little late. I'm running 10 to 15 minutes behind. Now, you have to know that I came from a family of four. There's uh, my sister and I, my parents. And so when we had a family meal, we waited because there's only four of us. And if one person's missing, 25% of the crowd, that feels a little, little slim. But Becca comes from a family of six kids, eight of them. It was a minor miracle if they could all be at the table at the same time. I didn't realize this at the time. So when I got after my 45 minute drive and I was about 10, 15 minutes late, I walk in from the the driveway uh, and the driveway door walks right into the kitchen table and there they all are eating dinner without me. What? Do you know who I am? Do I not belong here? What is going on? It was not necessarily an intentional act of favoritism, but inside my insecurities were sparked, and suddenly I felt like an outsider trying to sit at the insider's table. I'm not alone, am I? We've all had those experiences. We notice how colleagues seem to gravitate towards others, but rarely you, and your insecurities begin to make you wonder do I really belong here? You scroll as you scroll social, through social media at night, one time you discover that a good friend of yours is at an event that you are not invited to, and you begin to wonder, "Am I really their friend?" Or maybe? As you enter the cafeteria lunchroom and you're a new kid at the school or even a kid that's been there for a long time and you wonder where you're gonna sit and so your eyes are peering just waiting for someone to make eye contact, waiting for someone to raise their hand and invite you over but no one seems to and you begin to wonder amongst so many people, does anyone even notice I'm here? Or maybe at the holidays, you notice that your siblings always seem to get a gift that's just a little notch not nicer than yours, and you begin to wonder, am I ever going to be the family favorite? Favoritism stings, doesn't it? Whether it's real or perceived, whether it was intentionally done or done in obliviousness, consciously or haphazardly, favoritism places us on a scale where we just don't quite measure up. And I think that the insecurity that we feel from favoritism is hampering us as a society. I wonder if we're less willing to connect with others because we seem, they seem to have all their friends set and so we're not going to initiate relationship with them. I wonder if the insecurity from favoritism has caused us to think that we can only be friends with people who look, act, think, or believe the same as, as, as we do. I wonder if the insecurity from favoritism has handicapped our ability to hear constructive feedback or to uh, our capacity to process differing social issues with our family and friends. And I wonder if the insecurity from favoritism has even caused us to belittle or mock others or, at our worst, dehumanize people that are different from us. Unfortunately, I think that the church in North America hasn't necessarily been much better. Recently, I read an article that churches have become even more, increasingly so, racially, politically, and even socioeconomically monolithic in the last number of years. There are fewer and fewer places in our society where we can interact with people who think, look, attain differently than us. James' appeal in chapter two convicted the first century church, and I think it still convicts us today. I like the way that one commentator summarized this passage when uh, he said that James's challenge not to discriminate graciously disrupts our natural way of treating others who are different from or disagree with us. When God calls us to welcome them as warmly as God welcomes us, we are invited into the joy of imitating God. James's challenge not to discriminate graciously disrupts our natural way of treating others who are different from or disagree with us. When God calls us to welcome them as warmly as God welcomes us, we are invited into the joy of imitating God which is to say James' appeal is not just an ethic to do good. It's not just a command to follow. It's not just a a should we ought to live out. But behind James' appeal to not show favoritism is an invitation to imitate God, to embody Jesus and as joyful, we get to live out our adoption as God's children, sinners in need of a savior, beggars in need of mercy, all of us. Christ is the one who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, to hold on, to for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of his servant and being found in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Favoritism is painful. Favoritism is wrong, evil, a sin even, because it's the exact opposite way of Jesus. Jesus is the glorious one. Jesus is the majestic one. Jesus is God himself. Yet he became like us in humility and ended in humiliation. The one who deserves favoritism emptied himself completely of it. Not showing favoritism is not just a rule we should live out, live out, live out but a person we get to follow. And his name is Jesus. Seeking to imitate Christ as our posture, I think, does at least two things for us. One, it humbles us. Because when we get stuck in the game of comparing ourselves with one another, when we measure how how we're doing based on our human scales of appearance, or wealth, or, or smarts, or whatever, and then compare that with the glory and the majesty, the dignity, the beauty of God, our scales are blown away. It'd be like comparing, uh, kids comparing how much change they have in their piggy bank with their millionaire parents. It it would be like if weight was a competition in a good way, it'd be like, oh, well, I'm 185 pounds. I'm 195 pounds. I'm 200 pounds. And God is as heavy as the Rocky Mountains. The difference between how we measure up with one another is exponentially smaller than the difference between Christ and humanity but imitating Christ can also be wildly affirming. We're reminded that we are adopted into the life of Jesus Christ. We've been made like him. We are his child. We get to live out how he taught us to live. No matter how bad we've screwed up in the past, no matter how low we see ourselves on the scale of human goodness, we've been made right. We've been made like him. By the power of the Spirit, we are little Jesuses. Humanity, dare I even say, is God's favorite because it was for your sake, for my sake, for the sake of the world that God entered this world in the form of Jesus Christ. Imitating Christ, then, is both humbling and affirming. James is not a pastor just shouting a list of shoulds to his congregation. You shouldn't show favorites. You should be gracious to all. You shouldn't discriminate. You should, 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 should. No. He's testifying to the grace and glory of Jesus and he's inviting his people to reminding his people to imitate their God, Jesus Christ himself. Not because they have to, but because they get to, and it's the best way to live as individuals and as a community. It's got me wondering, what's it look like for you, for me, for us together to imitate Jesus by not showing favorites? At Camp Geneva a couple weeks ago, I was talking with a person there that had spent a lot of time at Camp Geneva. They were surrounded by people their own age, they were earnest in their faith, and they were seemingly having a great summer at Camp Geneva. But in a conversation with this person, I asked, how you doing? Oh, good, good, good. And no, I said, how are you really? How are you really doing? And what this person said broke my heart. They said after a summer there, they, they wondered if, they had any friends. They wondered if they were anybody's favorite. My heart melted. This was a beautiful person trying to do good, trying to love Jesus, do the right thing, and seeking belonging, and they still felt incredibly alone. This student's honesty is revealing of a society in which we live in. In an upcoming Bell article, my colleague Steve Abranius quotes uh, another article put out by the surgeon general calling loneliness and isolation an epidemic facing our country it's an invisible epidemic you might say there's no vaccine for it and not many not much talk about it just yet but according to the art, article it is having damaging effects on us as individuals and us as a society in fact they equated in this article the individual pain of uh, isolation and loneliness as the equivalent of smoking 15, packs of, 15 cigarettes a day. One in two adults, according to this article, American adults have suffered at one time or another from loneliness and isolation. This is a challenge that's facing our country. But unlike the last epidemic, where we as a church don't have the expertise to solve the problem, this is right in our wheelhouse, my friends. We are a community that seeks to be a place of belonging for all people. We have a solution to the loneliness problem that we can be known, that we can be loved, that we can be cared for, and that we can exhibit that kind of knowing, loving, and caring with one another. One anecdote, I think, to favoritism, one way in which we might imitate Jesus is to do what we have actually named as a value recently here at Fellowship Church, by becoming an even more better place of belonging, by being an inviting people. We invite people into life-giving fellowship with God and life-giving fellowship with one another. I wonder if the favoritism and the insecurity it sparks in us has hampered us from being an in inviting people. I want to challenge us in the spirit of James this week to get immensely practical about how we might be a more inviting people, to be open to how the Spirit might be guiding us. Maybe we might imitate Christ by inviting someone over to our house for a meal. Maybe we might imitate Christ by saying no to one of our favorites so that we can be in relationship with someone who needs some con- a, a form of connection. Maybe we can imitate Christ by saying yes to an invitation instead of making excuses, we clear our calendars. Maybe we can imitate Christ by holding less tightly to the judgments we have of others and write something good about some somebody that we disagree with. Maybe we can imitate Christ by being a little bit more courageous, just a little bit more vulnerable, and pursuing relational connectedness with a friend in a different way than we have before, or maybe we can be immensely practical and consider how we might imitate Christ by being a kids' hope mentor and walking alongside of a student for a year. The book of James can easily be lit, read as a list of shoulds, but James' primary primary concern is that the body of Christ is that the body of Christ might imitate what it calls itself, a true body. Maybe more than ever, our world, our society, our community right here in Holland needs to know that they belong, body and and soul to this body. And maybe we can fight favoritism by inviting others into fellowship and practicing it better with ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.
2: As we consider this morning how the Spirit of God is speaking to us and inviting us into action this next week, we may need courage and we may need wisdom from God. The book of James reminds us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God, and he gives it generously. So let's stand and sing together, making this the words of this closing song our prayer, our heart's prayer together.
4: go. May God give us courage and wisdom as we seek to be an inviting people, inviting people into life-giving fellowship with God and with one another. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and ever and forever. Amen. Go in peace.